The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I am Johnny Orr, and to read the scriptures for today, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the living word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the, his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and up to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I love that technology uh, allows us to see faces and hear voices that we haven't physically seen or heard in in months, Johnny Orr is is uh, one of the greatest uh, encouragers to me, and uh, uh, just grateful for technology right now. Grateful for you. Uh, good to be here with you, worshiping the Lord together. Uh, that includes those of you uh, who are joining us online uh, through live stream, through podcasts, and through other means of of, of uh, getting uh, involved with the church through technology. I know some are on vacation, uh, many are still continuing to exercise extra precaution. Uh, I'm told uh, from several of our doctors that, that uh, vaccines start tomorrow for them, uh, and they continue through the week uh, in the medical community, and, and so uh, they're uh, wonderful signs of light and progress because of the wisdom that God has given certain people to uh, create uh, little liquids that fight big uh, earth-shattering pandemics. And so uh, do be in prayer for that as we move forward. But for now, uh, in this weary world that we're in, uh, we're continuing in our series that we've called A Weary World Rejoices. And uh, as I begin the sermon, uh, my mind goes back to uh, the earliest seasons of ministry. My wife, Patty, will probably remember this. Uh, we were planting our first church, and one of the mottos that we adopted was attempt something so great that if God's not in it, it will be doomed for failure. And, you know, that was 1997. That was about 23, 24 years ago. And as I look back on 
statements like that one, you know, attempt something so great, uh, even though it was well-intended, I, I wonder if that's more of an American sentiment than it is a biblical one. Uh, I'm not sure we're encouraged to attempt great things as much as we are in, encouraged to uh, keep our eyes fixed on the hope of Christ and follow him uh, wherever he takes us, either through his word or through the circumstances that he, uh, he governs and reigns supreme over at every uh, season of our lives. Uh, the whole idea of big, hairy, audacious goals for the kingdom, those are really God's uh, jurisdiction and God's concern. Uh, and I think over the years, uh, maybe through a few hard knocks, maybe through one global pandemic, I've learned that attempting things so great uh, is really not the point. Uh, and in fact, Jeremiah said that to his scribe. He said, do not seek great things for yourself. Do you desire to seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, he said. Uh, The calling of the Christian life is not to be awesome, is not to achieve great things. Uh, The calling of the Christian life is to uh, move into the space of John the Baptist. When they wanted to make him something great, he said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, There's one who comes after me whose sandals I'm unworthy to even touch and untie. He must increase and I must become less. And so here we are in Isaiah, uh, in chapter 9, which is one of the most famous passages uh, referred to during Advent season every year in churches all over the world, and lo and behold, he mentions all sorts of underdogs in this passage that is mysteriously and paradoxically also about the triumph of God and the triumph of his kingdom through underdogs, like Isaiah himself, like Uh, the tiny nation of Israel, like uh, Gideon's small and ever-shrinking army against the mighty Midianites, like David, like the little child who will come to rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask the question today, why is it that the African-American church has historically said God is the God who makes a way out of no way? And why is it that Isaiah, from his place of loss and sorrow and setback, is saying the same kinds of things with such hope and optimism? Uh, What is it about Isaiah that enables him to live fully in a tragic place? Three things, the wonderful counselor, a fortified optimism, and then the zeal of God. So let's look at this uh, name that he ascribes to God, the wonderful counselor. If anybody has worked with a counselor, you know that a big part of a counselor's job is to help you see things that you're not able to see with the counselor's insight or with the counselor's wisdom. A counselor is there in part to help you uncover hidden realities so that you can become more awake, more alive to what's real, uh, and live your life in a healthier way. Now, to the naked eye, you look at Israel's circumstances while Isaiah was writing these words, and, and uh, they might sing a song that goes something like this. 
This world keeps spinning faster into a new disaster. You recognize those lyrics? That's Lady A, song written by Tom Douglas. Everything was spinning into, into disaster and had been for actually 400 years. For, I say, you think, you think, you know, eight, nine months of a pandemic is a long time. It is a long time, but we're talking 400 years of decline. 400 years of, of no vaccine or, or, or you know, financial recovery or any other thing being promised on the horizon for Israel. It's gloom, it's anguish, it's contempt, according to verse 1, especially for cities like Zebulun and Naphtali, which happened to be the cities, the two cities that were hit hardest when Assyria invaded Israel in 733 B.C., and then Isaiah talks about the rod of the oppressor uh, in verse 4. And then he remembers back to the book of Judges uh, where there's, a, there's an account of, of a leader of Israel named Gideon who is charged to do battle in the name of the Lord against Midian. So when he talks about the days of Midian, he's referring to that account in Judges chapter 7. And what happened there was... Uh, the Israelite army at the time was 22,000 people. The Midianite army was a little bit more than half that at 12,000 people. But what God does in order to communicate to Israel that it's not their might, not their power, not their planning, but the power of God that's going to give them any triumph, that's going to give them any victory, what God does is he reduces that army of 22,000 people to just 300. And they weren't just 300 men. It, it, was, it was the strangest 300 men. You know, God says to Gideon, only keep in the army those who drink water like a dog does, who, you know, sticks their tongue in the water and laps it up instead of picking it up in their hands or in a cup like, like normal people do. Only keep the people who drink in a very strange way and behave in, in, in extremely socially awkward ways. Those are your, that's your army. Those who behave like animals, that's your army. And so, so Gideon has 300 people to contend with an army that's 40 times its size. At the time of Isaiah's writing, it was about like that. The odds were about like that. Gloom, anguish, contempt, these are words that Isaiah used. These are, the, these are, these are still the present reality for Israel. Gloom, anguish, and contempt. What Isaiah is saying, among other things, is there's no way that Israel can dig itself out of the hole that we're in. Any more than, than, than Gideon was able to rally in his own strength an army of 300 strange men to defeat this mighty army 40 times its size. That was not the power of men. That was the power of God. And in the same way, Isaiah is saying the only way out of this is through the power of God. But then he gets really optimistic in the midst of that and, and says things like God is going to make a way out of no way. He's going to do it. The zeal of the Lord, he says, will accomplish this. It's going to happen. We can be sure of it, but Israel wasn't on board with that. Instead, Israel... <clears throat> wanted to shut Isaiah up. And in order to shut Isaiah up, they eventually shut Isaiah down. They took his life. They executed him in the same way that the Roman 
powers executed 11 of the 12 disciples of Jesus some years later. Israel had become cynical. They had become despairing and hopeless. You know, life is a tale told by an idiot full of, you know, sound and fury, signifying nothing. Life is worthless. God is nowhere. We haven't heard his voice in 400 years. What's the point? Let's just all get real and get cynical. You know, Camus wrote a book, uh, which is essentially a commentary on the Greek myth of Sisyphus. And I won't get into that myth. I've spoken of it before. As much as I will uh, point out a, a, a hypothetical uh, anecdote that Camus made up to describe his perspective uh, on what it's like to live in a world like this. And he said, imagine a man is given a day off from work and he has these great plans to, 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 to enjoy the day fully. And then at the beginning of the day, a strange man invades his home and puts a gun to his head and says, I'm going to kill you in two hours. But there's good news. I'm a generous killer. You can, you can live your dream. You, you can do whatever you want for these next two hours before I kill you. And of course, for the next two hours, that, that, that reality of his pending death hovering over him makes it impossible for the man to enjoy the espresso or the, jo the jog in the park or the lovely sunshine of the day. It's all meaningless. It's all vapor, as the writer of Ecclesiastes once wrote. And what Camus says is that this anecdote of the gun to the head is a metaphor for what it, for what it means to be honest, for what it means to be awake to the fact that every single one of us is facing death. That's where we're all headed. Nobody's ever been able to beat it, except one, which Camus did not acknowledge. And this is what's happening with Israel. This is where their headspace is. Isaiah, it's like we've got a gun to our head. What's all this optimism about? What's all this God talk about? What's all this hope talk about? We're in a freaking global pandemic for Pete's sake. You know, did you hear the words that Anderson Spickard rightly stated? Love that guy. He's so, he's so real and so connected to Jesus. He said, Lord, there is discouragement, there's disruption, there's confinement, there's illness, there's financial hardship. That's the reality of the world right now. Multiply that by 100 times and you've got Israel's situation for the last 400 years. Of course, they're going to wrestle with cynicism. We've got a gun to our head. What's the point? No way means no way. Forget this God talk about how God can make a way out of no way. See, they started to see the Bible stories, which were actually historic record, as if they were made up stories, as if they were cleverly invented fables. They forgot the time, space, history of God. So who was right? Was it Isaiah? Or was it cynical Israel? Was it hopeful Isaiah or was it cynical Israel? History tells us who was right. But first, chapter 53, later on, Isaiah would talk about the child and who this child would become. The suffering servant, the coming Messiah, the king who would reign but who would also be despised, rejected, and humiliated 
who would be born of a virgin, but also born in a stable in an insignificant town to economically impoverished parents who would live his whole life at the bottom of the food chain, even though he created food. No education, no political power, no money, no social connections. His life ends in utter humiliation as a professional failure, a disappointment to his followers, and an embarrassment to his mother. Behold your God. Behold your king. Behold the hope of the universe. Behold the one who's going to rescue you from all of this gloom and anguish and contempt. I love telling this story about Walker Percy. He was asked once why he was a Christian. And his answer was, because Israel exists. There's no reason why Israel should exist. No earthly reason. Enslaved to to the Egyptian pharaoh for 40 years. Then you had Herod's genocide right after the birth of Christ throughout the land. You have Hitler's Holocaust. You have the persecution of the Jews who've always been a minority in, in, in virtually every culture they've been a part of. The persecution and violence toward the Jews even leading up to this day. Percy says, Walker Percy says, I believe, I believe... In God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, because the Jews exist. There's no reason why they should. In the same way that the Christian church should not exist. Jesus commissions a bunch of fishermen. Eleven out of the twelve of them are martyred. Their lives presumably end in defeat in the same way that Isaiah's life eventually would. You know it because we've told you this. The whole Bible was written except for Ecclesiastes, which was written by a miserable rich man, and the Song of Solomon that was, you know, it's in its own category that keeps it out of the children's Bibles. The whole Bible, other than those two books, were written either by a refugee, an oppressed minority, somebody who was in prison, or somebody who was facing violent persecution. The whole Bible, you guys, God favors the underdog. That's why Isaiah, an underdog in his own right, has all of this hope and optimism. God still works this way. That's why Chesterton said that Christianity is a religion of little things. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Second reason why Walker Percy said he became a Christian is because there are no more Hittites. The world power, there are no more Hittites. The little Jews survived, the the little community of Jewish people survived. Christianity flourishes. 2,000 years later, here we are in Nashville, Tennessee, in in the ends of the earth, in the middle of a global pandemic, worshiping Jesus along with one-third of the world today. Meanwhile, the Assyrian Empire, gone. The Babylonian Empire, gone. The Roman Empire, gone. The Hittites, gone. Says Walker Percy, I believe because the Jews exist and the mighty empires do not. There's no explanation for that. 
We name our sons after Isaiah and Gideon and the 12 disciples, or at least 11 of them. And we name our dogs after Nebuchadnezzar and Nero. Fortified optimism, that's number two. His name. You want to know what gives Isaiah so much hope? The name of God. And the name of God is his essence, it's his character, it's who he is. It's not just what he's done, it's who he is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting God. Why why the pivot to so much positivity and hope in a year of anguish, gloom, and contempt? Are your eyes closed, Isaiah? Are you denying reality? Are you pie in the sky? No. I mean, we've seen it ourselves how gutsy Isaiah is in his honesty. He names the anguish. He names the gloom. He names the contempt. At the beginning of his prophecy, at the beginning of his ministry, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He names reality. He talks about the gun that's stuck in his head. He talks about the people dwelling in darkness. He talks about the shadow of death. He names it. He doesn't deny it and medicate with sex and politics like Americans do. He names it. He faces it with courage. Acknowledges he can't control any of it. His name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He draws from David. Talks about David's throne. That little obscure guy who spent a lot of his life on the run as a refugee from King Saul. That little guy who was overlooked and forgotten and called a runt by his father Jesse and and abandoned and forsaken by his mother and who wrote half of the Psalms. David, King David, who writes honest things and prays honest prayers. Out of the depths I cry to God, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Why have you forsaken me? Why do the wicked prosper? Why? And in the midst of those, and and oftentimes in the same prayers, he preaches a big God to his own shriveling heart. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I had this text exchange uh, just last night with a friend, and we were commenting on our, in our text exchange about how, uh, how Tim Keller has responded publicly to uh, his own uh, diagnosis, which is not a good diagnosis. And we, we were remarking back and forth, and he's like, like you know this guy, like, like what's the deal? Like, why are there so many notes of hope even optimism, why, why do his spirits seem up? Why, why is he staying as active as he is? Why does he seem like the least concerned person on the internet, at least, about his own diagnosis? And I don't, I don't know exactly why, I can only make an educated guess. I came to know through my friendship and time with Tim that he has a monthly practice of praying through the entire book of the Psalms every month and reading at least once through the entire Bible every year for over 50 years. That's why. That's why. He's a person who's been formed by the name of God, 
by realities that are bigger than the realities that we see and feel even. Bigger realities that enable the heroes of the faith, ancient and modern, to live fully in a tragic world. I got that phrase from Chip Dodd, by the way. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks, so he is. Where we invest our minds is where the rest of our life is going to go, in other words. What we fill our minds with is where the rest of our lives are going to go. Romans 12, 7, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Ecclesiastes, remember your creator. Remember his name. Remember his character. Remember that he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and that the government will be on his shoulders and the increase of his government, there will be no end. Remember these things, Ecclesiastes says, from the days that you were young. Start early. You want to know how an Olympic athlete wins gold? They start early and they train every day and they don't let up. They drill it in their heads, they drill it in their hearts, they drill it into their bodies until, until running to feel God's pleasure is second nature to them. That's how they win. You don't get a gold medal by sleeping in, waking up and saying, I think I'm gonna to run today, or I think I'm gonna to swim today, or I think I'm gonna to ski today. You, you win it by dedicating your life to it every single day making thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of many decisions to say yes to mundane faithfulness every single day. Because that moment, like Isaiah's moment, who knows when it's going to come, but it's gonna come for every one of us. Unless the mortality rate changes, it's gonna come for every single one of us. Formation over time. That's what gets Isaiah in this place of Optimism, but it's not just optimism, it's fortified optimism through spiritual practices. Finally, the zeal of God. This is what really gave Isaiah his confidence. He uses double tense language here. Do you see how he speaks both in the past and in the future? He says that the past is so certain, Midian's defeat, through a very small army of weirdos, that the future is most certainly certain. In the same way that, 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 that Christians, you know, in, in, you know, in history after the first advent, look forward to the second advent with confidence because the first advent happened. Because there was a virgin birth and because there was a resurrection from the dead, we have confidence that, that the promises that have yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled. That he will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That he will return and that, that, that he will bring his people with him and that we will be like him and see him as he is. And the last chapter, which is the only chapter that hasn't been lived yet, we're, we're living in the second to last chapter of God's story right now. Second to last chapter. Every chapter up to this point, including this one, includes anguish, gloom, and contempt. But the last chapter, that's where all of that's gone. And the other unique thing about the last chapter, besides that there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, no more anguish, no more gloom, no more contempt, 
The other thing is the last chapter is the only chapter that lasts forever. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. The best experience you ever have in this life is only a road sign. It's just a road sign. How many of us on a road trip to the ocean or to grandma's house stop at the sign? We don't stop at the sign. We, we, we rejoice in the sign because the sign points to the destination. In the same way that if, 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 a, if a house or, or, or a landscape is lit beautifully, we don't, look at the, we don't spend time looking at the floodlights. We, we look at what the lights illuminate. In the same way that the positive, beautiful, glorious experiences that we have and our, our, wonderful, our most wonderful memories, these are pointers to something that we can remember into the future until he comes. Until he comes. Everlasting Father. The hardest things in this life, on the other hand, including years like 2020 and all that they symbolize and all that they've brought have an expiration date, have a shelf life, With Jesus, your best days are always future, and your best days will be permanent and will always be on the increase because he's the Prince of Peace. The word there is shalom. It means a lot more than inner serenity, even though it includes that. Peace in the Bible, the word shalom in the Bible, means what John 3.16 means that we maybe not, might not be fully aware of. When John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it says, the, the, the literal word in the Greek is God so loved the cosmos, the universe, every square inch, every person, every place, everything, under God's reign, God so loved all of it that he gave his only begotten son. We're talking about spiritual, relational, vocational, economic, environmental, thriving, for infinite days into the future. If you've ever been piled on with criticism, piled on with with guilt trips, maybe piled on with grief because there's just been so much loss, 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 we all know what a pile on is like. It's, It's devastating. But this is a different kind of pile on. Isaiah is here in the midst of something even worse than a pandemic to pile on hope. And he just won't let up. He's talking about this always expanding reign of the increase of his government. There will be no end. That means means you're going to feel younger every day and not older. It means you're going to feel less tired, not more tired every day. And as the day goes on, It means every day is going to be better than before, every year better than the year before, every decade and century better than the one before. Ray Ortland in his Isaiah commentary sums it up this way. The empire of grace will forever expand. In his second advent, Jesus will not come back to tweak this problem and that. He will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever. Of the increase forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say this is the limit. God can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, 
the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. Now, Eugene Peterson in the message translates this, this name of God, Prince of Peace. He calls it the Prince of Wholeness. That's what shalom means, is wholeness. And Peterson goes on and says, his ruling authority will grow and there will be no limits to the wholeness that he brings. You can live, I can live, hopefully and fully, even in a tragic place. That's what Advent is all about. The people dwelling in darkness. From that very place of darkness, have seen a great light. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, if, if these things were only as easy to believe as they are to preach, if these things were only as easy to live out as they are to read and study and wish for, and yet, Lord, somehow, some way, you brought Isaiah to that place, of being able to live with gutsy hopefulness in the midst of gutsy honesty and reality about the world in which we live and the pain and hardship and anguish and gloom and contempt thereof. Father, teach us to pray like David did. Teach us to pray honest prayers. Teach us not to be afraid of our feelings with you. But Lord, direct our feelings by the truth. Direct them toward your great name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and every other name that is your name and that is consistent and congruent with your name. Hallowed be your name. May we make much of you. May you increase as we become Less. May we preach a big God to our own shriveling hearts that our hearts might swell again. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.